This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, my name is Fiametta Rocco. I'm the literary editor at The Economist. And I also have a little side job. I run the Man Booker International Prize. Um, can you hear here? We haven't done a sound check here, but can you hear at the back? A bit louder? OK. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back here again, particularly to a sold-out tent. And it's a real personal pleasure for me to introduce two authors who have written, I think, the best novels I've read this year. They're both up for the Edinburgh Book Festival First Book Award, and I'll be telling you a little bit more about that <laughs> before you go. <laughs> so on my far left here is uh, Chigozie Obioma. He grew up in a family of 12 siblings in Akure in southwestern Nigeria. 11. 11. 12. Sorry, I was misinformed. And he now teaches creative writing in America uh, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His first novel, Fisherman, came out in February. And it's really beginning to find its way up the foothills of literary prizes. It's on the long list for the Guardian First Book Award, the long list for the Man Booker Prize, short list for the FT Oppenheimer Emerging Voices Award. Clearly, this is a book that we're going to be hearing more about. And on my right here is Simon Sylvester. Uh, Simon is a writer, a teacher, an occasional filmmaker. He um, lives in Cumbria, but he grew up in Inverness. And his first book, The Visitors, is set on the west coast of Scotland. It came out last year, and it was named by The Independent as one of the best debut novels of 2014. And it also won The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize. So like Chigozie, Simon is a writer that we'll be hearing a lot about in future, I think. These books seem so different. One set in Nigeria, one on the west coast of Scotland, and yet when you begin to dig into them, there are quite a lot of similarities. Um, first of all, myth. You're both storytellers. You both draw on the power of myth in your own countries, but you've, to my mind at least, you've taken it a step further in both these books, because although you have uh, a hero, Chigozia, Simon, a heroine, with a very distinctive personality. The real voice of these books, the thing that made them both so memorable to me, is that the real voice is the myth itself. Um, magic, myth, uh, madness, it comes through incredibly powerfully. Chigozia, how conscious were you of this? when you were writing, and how difficult was it to achieve? Uh, so I, I do believe uh, that one of the essential qualities of fiction should be uh, that it should mimic the way of life or the consciousness of the people about whom it's written. And so the Africans who people, the, the fishermen, are veritable superstitious people so they <clears throat> so th th there is this uh, firm dependency on the supernatural and uh, in fact my my lovely mother would argue uh, with me vehemently that this time this period was predetermined a uh, long time ago so in the Igbo imagination, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Everything is planned. Uh, so uh, in, in, in incorporating that into a story about a family, uh, I wanted to be able to tease out that aspect of life, of, of, of the belief system. And that's why I would have uh, you know, a character like Abulu and have the people believe in these things. So the idea that someone can actually see the future. So I, I, I think that might explain the mythic quality or dimension that you saw in the book. 
He's quite an interesting character, Bully. I mean, The Fisherman is, I don't know how many of you have read it, but it's the story of four brothers who bunk off school and they go fishing and uh, they meet a madman who tells them that one of the brothers will be killed by another. So it's, it's a Cain and Abel story in a way, but it has this added dimension of this character, Abulu. He's somebody you obviously gave so much thought to. He's absolutely brilliantly drawn. He's an appalling character. He's filthy. He lives really rough. Um, he masturbates all the time. Sorry about the detail. Uh, mostly in public. But he's also, um, he's a soothsayer. Now, that's not an uncommon um, character in, in literature. Did he, does he come to you from Shakespeare? Or um, does he have a particular significance for you as a Nigerian writer? You know, I, I so I, I, it's, it's interesting how, the mind of a writer tends to work. I consumed Shakespeare when I was a child. Uh, there was this book called The Lamb. Lamb's Tales, of course. Not Lamb Tales of yes. Shakespeare or something like that. And I had that, you know, as, as long as I could remember. But when I was creating The Fisherman, I didn't think of Macbeth. It, it was something I that came to me after I had, you know, uh, reason the, the, the work. Uh, the idea of, of Abulu, of the madman, was in fact informed by uh, what inspired the novel in the first place, which was consummate uh, nostalgia. So I was in Nigeria and I was missing the heart of brothers and sisters that I had. You know, I had been living two years away from Nigeria in Cyprus. and. And so uh, I had started to think of them so much that I, I, I wanted to go home, but my family didn't let me. And so uh, one night I, I had a conversation with my dad in which he told me about uh, my two oldest brothers, how they had started getting along now that they were in their early thirties. And, but these guys used to fight a lot when they were kids. And, and so uh, I wanted to explore the that idea of a family, of a united entity, whatever it is, it can, can be a community, anything, and and what it is that could come from the outside and, and incise that unity and and kind of break it. So that was where, so I, I thought of, of the madman as that fellow, as a catalyst who could who could come from the outside. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I but but also the the African, in the African imagination generally, uh, any anything that comes from the outside and causes chaos is usually seen as as a madman. So and and there's a, a poem that begins, it's, it's like an epigraph, in the novel. Uh, so that poem is by uh, a South African poet, and it talks about how the madman enters the house with violence and stuff like that. Uh, so I thought that would be uh, the most concrete uh, creator or, or character mm -hmm. I could I could use for my purpose. Well, Simon, your your um, use of myth in a way is, is more formal. Tell us about the Selkie. The the, the visitors is set in the west coast of Scotland. Um, <coughs> two people, father and daughter, move to an island just at the moment where people begin to disappear and um, one of the myths that emerges in many different forms in this book is the myth of the silky interestingly my cousin has just named her baby daughter silky um, her husband is a <laughs> is an underwater archaeologist and he was um, making a film off cornwall and he swam and all of a sudden he saw a seal and he put his hand out like this, and this seal wrapped its flippers around his hand. And he said, I had an epiphany with a seal. So when his daughter was born, that's what they called her. Um, <clears throat> tell us about the silky. Seals, seals are amazing. Seals are incredible. And um, the idea for the visitors 
fell into my head, almost fully formed, uh, while I was on holiday, uh, not on an island, but on the, the Kintyre Peninsula, uh, just to the southwest of Scotland. When um, my wife and I, we, we had a three-month-year-old daughter uh, who was waking us up at ridiculous times of day and night, as, as they do, and we woke up early one morning and were looking out across the Kilbrannan Sound back towards Arran, and the sun was rising, and the Kilbrannan Sound was, was like a plate of glass. And I just had a, a sense then of, of the life that was boiling beneath the surface of the... Is that better? Is that better? <laughs> I just had a sense then of the life that was boiling beneath the surface of the water and uh, a feeling very much that there were things just going on all the time out of sight and out of mind. I can't remember a time when I haven't known the myth of the Selkie. It, it's, it's in my consciousness the way that Little Red Riding Hood is. It's, it's hardwired in there. And it's, it, I did a lot of research when I was writing The Visitors. She's the seal woman who, who yes. is such a... Um... So the, the idea is that, that it's a seal who can come on land, remove uh, usually her skin and take the form of a human. And if somebody is to take her skin, they can hold her captive, they can hold her ransom to whatever demands they choose, which is usually marriage and uh, wedlock and children. And uh, almost inevitably, somewhere along the line, she takes her skin back and, and the man is left utterly heartbroken. And mm. that, was, that was the myth I wanted to play with. And you, you, you both use these myths in a different way. I mean, Chikosia, yours is sort of slightly more amorphous, but equally powerful. Although the story of the fisherman is about these four brothers, each chapter is... Uh, encapsulated in a, in a kind of persona, presence. Um, one is called the river, very, very important part of this book. Another is the eagle, the python, the sparrow, um, the fungus, spiders. Um, what is the significance of these different animations? Uh, so, uh, as I said earlier, I, I wanted my fiction to uh, be mimetic in nature. And uh, so I, I wanted the uh, narrator, who is in fact one, the youngest of the brothers, Benjamin, to tell the story from, uh, retrospectively, from, from a remove of about two decades. So he's about 30, say, when, when he narrates the story. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tale twice told, though. He tells the tale as a child and, and as an adult. Yes, you don't get this <laughs> sense uh, that such a long time has elapsed yeah. until you're very close to the end, and you, that's partly what makes you realize what an incredible tragedy and, and there he, is in all of it. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I mean, and then he tells it again uh, at the court during the whatever. So, uh, so in that sense, I, I wanted two narrators meld into one whole. So there is the Benjamin who is an adult and the Benjamin who is a child. So uh, to be, so both of them, so I mean, so he's looking back at a moment and he's trying to capture the essence and the nuance of childhood while also, you know, every now and then intervening as an adult. So I, I thought that the best way to do that will be to frame it in such a way that remembrance would would be spastic and, and not be chronological. So, and I, I thought that the, the mind of a child, at least uh, a child that was eccentric, as I was when I was about <laughs> Benjamin's uh, age, uh, I think they, they when, the way they recall things is, is usually by associations so uh, I, I think I would if I, if I went to school at that age and, and some guy bullied me which happened a lot of times and I, I would return home and tell my mom you know there was this lion of a guy who who fought with me at school you know so I and and, and so I was fascinated somewhat with, with animals and and so I, I always recounted events by associate, associating them with with, with these elements. 
So that's what informs Benjamin's uh, view of the world. So he's, about, he's able to rationalize things uh, by pinning something bigger to, to those events. And, and for example, in, in the book, uh, he loses one of his brothers and he does not mourn the death of the brother because uh, while everyone else was seeing uh, Ikena as a corpse in a coffin, he sees a sparrow instead, and so the, which is a beautiful thing, and so the the uh, that consummate tragedy is diminished in that sense that he's able to. So he 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 doesn't really feel that until later on when he's about able to, you know, better rationalize things uh, with other aspects. So of is it like Philip Pullman? I mean, does does do each of your characters have a? I can't remember what he called them. Uh, so a, a yeah, kind of saw, yeah. a demon, a demon, a demon yeah. exactly. Yeah. Not exactly. I I sadly haven't read uh, anything by him other than uh, Alice in Wonderland. Is he the writer? No, he, no. He, he has he has this idea that that every every person has a spirit animal which is in with them in physical form. Uh, and oh. so, so their spirit animal might be a lizard, which lives in the the hood of their coat, and mm. th there's there's something that's actually personified. Oh, if you've never read them, you've got something <laughs> seriously good to look forward to. I will. That's an assignment. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> it, it it wasn't it wasn't that. I, it was just that, uh, you know, what what we look for when we recount events is is that testimonial truth, and and. Uh, uh, or testamentary truth, and and I think to arrive at that, uh, our minds work in different ways, and and that is how Benjamin's mind works. So he appellates everything. In fact, he actually substitutes, in fact, everything with these creatures. So Abulu, when he sees Abulu the first time, he tries to equate him with something and, and one of his brothers says, oh, why do you keep on with this nonsense? Why do you equate everything with some kind of animal personnel? You know, and I, it's, it's just how he sees the world. Simon, in your book, one of, the, one of the strongest characters in a way is the island itself. I mean, both of you have written about place. Both books have an incredibly strong sense of place at the moment where something, something shifts. Um, <clears throat> So in The Visitors, when the, this father and daughter come uh, to live on the island just at the time when these other people are disappearing, um, what was it that you wanted to bring out here? Because the sense of islandness is very, very I'm, powerful in this book. I, I am consistently fascinated by islands. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, I've never lived on an island no more than, I suppose... Britain is an island, isn't it? But, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like an island. It doesn't feel. It feels like this kind of sprawling expanse. You know, we we, we drove four but hours up from Cumbria the, today, and one of the things that like most that. that I most clearly remember when the um, Channel Tunnel was built, um, somebody made a comment calling it the rape of our islandness. <laughs> So oh it is, there are strong yeah. things, yes. Yeah, uh, but it, I guess I guess for me, an island is something that you need to be able to walk around in a day mm. or two. An, an island needs to be something that's more self-contained than Britain is. An island needs to be... It needs to have shores that there are accessible and tangible. And for me, the Bankri, the, the island of Bankri, is, is, is fictional uh, because... Knowing some of the Scottish islands, none of them did exactly what I needed them to. Um, so Gia was too small, and Jura was too barren, and um, Isla was, was too big, and the population was too big. And so, by and large, I found myself just needing an amalgamation of several places, pieces of real places. And in doing so, it came up with Bancree. And I, th I think what I wanted with Bancree was to create something for, for my narrator, Flora, that she was desperate to escape. And, and that, for me, was, was kind of quite a personal experience, uh, having grown up in Inverness, and I don't know how, how well anyone knows Inverness, 
But in 1995, when I was 15, 16 years old, that was a place I wanted to leave quite badly. So um, I, I think, I think um, for me, and I think all teenagers, it doesn't matter where they are. I think they've always got a sense of otherness. There's always a world beyond the horizon, which is kind of quite physically manifested right at the age where they're able to, to go there. And, and for me, Bancree became a, a, a jail cell, I suppose, that Flora needed to escape. But at the same time, I'm in love with the islands. I love that landscape. I love the textures. I love, I love the feel. I love the air. I love the color. And, and I, I couldn't make it a jail cell. And I, I suppose that in that respect, it had to be Flora who went through the transformation rather than the landscape. It's interesting what you say about teenagers and the other. I've always been interested in why it is that the novel came of age at the same time as the newspaper. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that both, in a way, um, bring a sense of the other. I mean, literature, more than any other art form, allows you to step into somebody else's shoes uh, and understand where they come from and how they've grown up and what sort of landscape they inhabit. Chikosia, uh, this is set, Fisherman is set in a very particular time in Nigeria. What was it about Nigeria that you wanted to convey in particular? Before I answer that question, I, I have to say that I, I found it difficult after reading the visitors to actually believe that that island didn't exist <laughs> I, I, so I, I, well. I, I'm, I'm amazed. You know, I mean, I've read it. It's, uh, I've read it twice now, and I'm astonished to hear you say that it was um, a, a fictional island. It's, it's, because it's, there's uh, one thing that I absolutely hate. It is novels that are set in fictional countries. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. You just have to say that it's a fictional African dictatorship. That, uh, so it, so let's, goes out let's, of the window. let's agree that he exists, but he doesn't know that he does. He doesn't know it exists. Yeah, so one you haven't been to yet. That, that settles it. So to the question uh, about the, the 1990s. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I think the answer to that would be two-dimensional, if I'm, if I'm right. So the, there is this, I've, I've been attacking dictums of, about creative writing recently. So it, it's, it's hypocritical actually to, to mention one and say that I was guided by one. But there's this dictum that uh, when at the onset of your writing career, fiction writers usually write what they know. Obviously, you've written what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's a jigsaw. It's it's a montage of of everything. So I I grew up uh, in the nineteen nineties, and, and I thought that was uh, so. It, it was uh, the the period that I was familiar with in 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 Nigeria, uh, but also in a way. I think I couldn't have set the the novel at any other period that would have, uh, you know, success, successfully carried the project I wanted or the intention, authorial intention uh, that I had for it. So by and large, the, the novel is a commentary on the paradoxical nature of Nigeria. So you have an, a nation that is immensely rich by in terms of uh, resources and wealth, uh, but that does not that is poor at the same time. So, so I mean it's 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 hard to fathom uh, the, the the stature of the nation. So the and the commentary that the book does is is in fact to explore the possible reason for that paradox and so the 1990 for that reason is important because it was a seminal period in Nigeria's history so uh, the book spans 10 decades so it begins in 1993 when Nigeria had a shot at uh, real democracy for the first time so after, once, after years and years of military government, yeah. Right. When the British left in 1960, uh, the, so it became a free-for-all. 
every two years or so some military guy comes in and shoots the one before him and and announces that now he's the president so that went on until common sense intervened in in 1993 so but again the that election was thwarted and and annulled so the person who won the election was not the person the military guy wanted and so uh, so that that began i think i think it was from that moment that nigeria's steep decline actually was occasioned or engendered but then the novel ends in 2003 when nigeria had a a another take uh, attempt at democracy and it has been sustained uh, thankfully up to this day so uh and it corresponds with the moment when benjamin comes of age he's been through all of the things that happened so i think it was a deliberate attempt to uh encapsulate the that whole period uh in one piece in one whole and and there, a lot of momentous events happened during that period Nigeria, for example, is big on soccer or footballers. Britain is, you know, some of you are Chelsea fans, I know, it's, and Man U. Uh, yeah, and we won the Olympic uh, in 1996. So there are a lot of documentary uh, stakes that, that happened over that period. I think it's time to read a little bit. You can't, we can't really just convey a sense of this novel. It's got to speak. To you itself. Well, if you say so, I will do that with pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so I have chosen a. I'll try to be as quick as possible so you can hear the real deal, which is the visitors. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I think it's, it's, it's best for me to. <laughs> Sorry, I should just say, he's just shown his, his bookmark, <laughs> which says literature is better with beer. So, yeah, it's, it's just fallen out of his book. Do you it. agree? <laughs> Everything is better with beer. If you're Irish, yeah, I suppose you agree. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Benjamin, I think I mentioned already, is the guy who tells the story. He's one of four brothers, and it's his voice we hear uh, through my own voice. A little more than a week before the neighbor caught us, my brothers and I were returning from the Omiala River with the other boys when we met Abulu along the sandy pathway. We had just completed a fishing session at the river and were walking home discussing the two big tilapias we'd caught that day, one of which Ikenna had fiercely argued was a symphosidon. When upon reaching the clearing where the mango tree and the celestial church were located, Coyote cried, Look, there's a dead man under the tree. A dead man, a dead man. We all turned at once to the spot and saw a man lying on the mat of falling leaves at the foot of the mango tree. His head pillowed on a small broken branch still foliated with leaves. Mangoes of different sizes, colors, yellow, green, red, and ones in different stages of decomposition lay about everywhere. Some were squashed, some rotten from bed bites. The sole of the man's feet, which laid plain before our eyes, were so ugly that it seemed that Atlas' foot had carved sinewy lines all over them, giving them the resemblance of a complex map. map colored with dead leaves that clung to every line. That's a, not a dead man. He is the one human this tune. Ikenna, my oldest brother, said calmly. He must be a madman. This is how mad people behave. Although I had not heard the tune before, I did now that Ikenna called our attention to it. Ikenna is right, Solomon said. This is Abulu, the vision-seeing madman. Then snapping his fingers, he said, I detest this man. Ah, he cannot cry. Is it him? It is him, Abulu, Solomon said. I didn't even recognize him, said Ikenna. 
I looked at the madman now whom Iken and Solomon had revealed they knew, but I could not remember having ever seen him before. A great number of mad people, derelicts and beggars, roamed the streets of Akure town, and there was nothing noteworthy or distinct about any of them. It was thought strange to me that this one not only had a distinct identity, but also a name, a name people seemed to know. As we looked on, the madman raised his hands and held them strangely in the air, still with a sublimity that struck me with awe. Look at that, Bocha said. Abulu sat up now, as if glued to the spot, peering straight into the distance. Let's leave him alone and go our way, Solomon said at that point. Let's not talk to him. Let's go. Leave him alone. No, no, we, we should rattle him a bit, Boja, my second older brother said. We shouldn't just live like that. This could be fun, you know. Listen, we could frighten him. And no, Solomon said forcefully. Are you mad? Don't you know this man is evil? Don't you even know him? While Solomon was speaking, the madman burst into a sudden roar of laughter. In fear, Boja swiftly skipped backwards and rejoined the rest of us. Just then, Abulu sprang acrobatically to his feet with one prodigious leap. He put both hands together to his side, clasped his legs, and with, without a part of his body moving, fell back into his former position. Thrilled by this calisthenic display, we clapped and cheered in admiration. He's a giant, Superman, Coyote cried, and the others laughed. We'd by now forgotten that we had been on our way home. Darkness was slowly covering the surface of the horizon, and our mother might soon begin looking for us. I was thrilled, though, and fascinated by this strange man. I cupped my hand around my mouth and said, He is like a lion. You compare everything to animal, Ben. Ikena said, shaking his head as if the comparison had annoyed him. He's not like anything, you hear? He's just a madman. A madman. Lost in that moment, I watched this awesome creature with all the concentration that I could gather until details of him filled my mind. He was roped from head to foot in fields. As he rode spryly to stand, some of the fields rose with him, while some was left in patches on the ground. He had a fresh scowl on his face just below his chin, and his back was killed, kicked with a dripping mess of some, from some dead mango in a state of putrefaction. His lips were dried and cracked. His hair was unkept. It stretched like tendrils, giving him the appearance of a Rastafarian. His teeth, most of which were blackened as if singed, reminded me of fire-blowing gypsies and circus players who blew fire from their mouths and probably, I thought, burned their teeth. The man lay bare before our eyes, stark naked except for a shred of rag which hung loosely from his shoulder down to his waist. His pubic region was covered with a dense foliage of hair in the midst of which his veiny penis hung limply like trouser rope. His legs were bursting without varicose veins. Let me know when you want me to stop. <laughs> okay. Good place. Told you this Abulu was quite a character. <laughs> well, there are other ways besides um, setting and mad people that as novelists you can convey the other. Simon, you've done it most memorably in The Visitors by the fact that your central character is a teenage girl. Now, you're a man, obviously. You have a daughter, but she's only four. And I can tell you that my 18-year-old daughter read this book and she said, I don't know how he does it. <laughs> so why did you choose a teenage girl and how did you make it work? Uh, ooh, I, I've, I wanted to go on an adventure with the visitors. I wanted to, to go on a journey. After years of writing quite experimental literature and, you know, the, the kind of 
stories that have got no capital letters in them and no punctuation. And uh, I remember telling my agent about a novel I'd, I'd written with uh, with no capital letters. And as as I was telling her, she was kind of gradually leaning away from me. And, <laughs> but um, I reached the point where. I, I wanted to write stories, storytelling stories, and I wanted to take myself on, a, on journeys and on adventures. And when I sat down with the visitors, that's, I always knew it was going to be a first person narrative. And I decided to take myself out of myself and switch gender um, to write as a, a girl. And I needed to escape, and so I became a teenage girl. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, but this is where I start to tangle myself up with it because I don't necessarily believe that teenage girls are radically different from teenage boys or from um, Inuit uh, grandmothers or from, uh, you know, my own four-year-old daughter. I, I believe there are so many things that we have in common, uh, so many universal experiences that, that for me it's, it's very much about trying to tap into those. and. To see my, my little girl Dora struggling with the buttons on her cardigan, that's the same frustration. I can see it carved in her face that I feel when I'm trying to fix the woodshed and it keeps falling down, or when I can't get my, my, the end of a chapter right. And, and those universal experiences, I, I think, are so important for, for us as humans, but also for, for writers, to be able to deliver some empathy uh, in their characters. That's one of the things that I loved so much in Chigozzi's book was, was, was being inside Ben's head and inside Ben's experience and, and it, it makes for a, a remarkable read. For, for me, I, I, I needed to be in somebody else's head to go on the journey that I went on in The Visitors. Take us into the head of the book. Come on, let's have a, let's have a read of that. Right. So, because like um, the other one, you don't really, really get it until... You you try it. Uh, I'm going to read one of the myths from the book. I, I invented some of the Selkie myths that were, that were in here because I couldn't find what I needed. I wanted to use traditional folklore when I started and I couldn't find stories that did quite what I wanted so I had to make them up and uh, th there's, a, there's a storyteller in the book called Izzy and this is one of his, his stories. Once upon a time, there was a poor crofter. He lived alone in his wee cottage on the shores of a windswept island. He kept chickens and had a pig or two in the byre out back. He grew tatties and turnips and fished in the river and set nets in tidal pools. He kept crab pots by the shore and collected firewood from the beach. Every few weeks, he'd gather his surplus and take it to sell at market, returning with cloth or salt or whatever else he needed to get by. By night, he darned his socks or fixed his nets. The crofter survived day to day, but his was a lonely, cheerless existence, and there was a sadness inside him that would not leave him be. It nagged at him like a tooth. Now, there came a time when a travelling musician performed at the market. He played the fiddle most beautifully, and the crofter was transfixed. When the fiddle was upbeat, the crofter tapped his foot in time with the music, tasting the warmth of whiskey on a hot summer night. And when the fiddle played a lament, the crofter felt the chill of midwinter alone in his wee cottage. He believed with all of his heart that this wonderful music could cure the sadness caught inside him. He resolved at once to learn the fiddle for himself. He sold his mother's old loom, some family treasures and a piglet, and bought himself a fiddle. He took his instrument back to his cottage, and he started to practice. Oh, how he practiced. When he first woke in the morning, he played a little, sitting up in bed. He came home for his lunch and played the fiddle while his broth boiled over on the grate. And then, every night, when he'd returned from the field or from checking on his crab pots, he'd build up the fire, ease off his boots, take up the fiddle and play and play and play. He played until his fingers ached and his elbows turned stiff and then he played until he'd worked them loose again. After years of practice, that crofter played second to none. Each night, the sweetest music poured from the windows of his cottage. He played the fastest dances, conjuring the wildest Cayley from a simple note, and he played the slowest, softest, saddest songs you've ever heard. He'd learned the fiddle, 
as well as any man alive. But no matter how well he played, still that nagging sadness chewed at him, eating his insides like a rat. He took to sitting on the foreshore every night, playing laments to his own loneliness, and the mournful music slid across the water softer than snowfall. He played until dark. One night, a selkie swam past the island. She heard the fiddle, and she stopped to listen. She was entranced by the music, and coveted the crofter's skill with his instrument. She resolved to take it for herself. Stepping onto the shore, she emerged from her skin and took the form of a beautiful woman. She conjured her skin into the form of a shell, and hid it deep in a rock pool, then ran to the cottage, weeping that she was lost and she was alone. The crofter was a good man, and he gave her shelter. To protect her from the cold, he gave his jacket and his boots. To make her comfortable, he gave his bed. He fed her. He cared for her. As time went along, they became lovers. And at last, the crofter felt that sadness lifted from his spirit. As his love for her grew ever stronger, so his music became more wonderful, more entrancing. Invigorated by this new passion, he played his music to the selkie, and she found it more beautiful than ever. She begged him to teach her the fiddle, and of course, crazy with his love, he agreed. The selkie woman remembered every note, every motion he taught her, and soon she learned to play. She demanded more lessons, longer lessons. The crofter was so in love that he forgot his duties. His pigs died. His chickens stopped laying eggs and shed their feathers, and then the harriers came for them. He forgot to plant new crops. In abandoned pots, the crabs starved and rotted, and all he did, day and night and day, was teach his woman how to play the fiddle. With each day, he grew thinner and sicker, nourished only by his desire for the selkie, and all the while she grew stronger, feeding like a tick on his love and the gift of the music. She gorged herself, craving more, demanding more, and the skill that had taken the crofter years to master was taken from him in months. He grew weaker until a day came when he was too faint to leave his bed. He called to his woman, his wife, to his love, to repay his kindness and to care for him in turn, and smiling sweetly, the selkie stepped from the bed, as lithe and strong as ever, and took up his fiddle. She began to play, making the instrument sing and dance as though it were alive, as though it had a voice. She played fast and she played slow. She played loud and she played soft. She played the music of the heart and the music of death. The crofter listened, watching from his bed, entranced at the skill of his wonderful bride, his eyes full of tears at how beautifully she played. She played and played for hours and he felt sickness overtake him. He called for help, begging her for food and for water, but she kept on with the fiddle. He tried to shout above the music, and his voice came out a rasp. Exhausted, he collapsed back on the bed. The selkie lowered the fiddle, her fiddle now, and laughed at the weakness, at the weakness of all men. She left the cottage, taking the fiddle and returned to the beach. She returned her skin from, uh, she retrieved her skin from its hiding place and slipped back beneath the waves without so much as looking back. From his window, the crofter watched her swim away, only now understanding that she was a selkie, a seal woman, and his heart broke twice, once for the loss of his beautiful bride and once for the death of his music. Oof. I could go on asking lots and lots of questions, but I think it's probably a moment to let you ask some questions. It's wonderful having um, first-time writers here, writers who are published for the first time. I'm always intrigued at how you actually become writers, but we can talk about that in a minute. Um, there are roving mics. Anybody wants to ask? Well, while you're thinking about it, how did you begin? How did you begin to write? To write anything, mm. um, I I escaped. Uh, I escaped this island. Um, I, I was not especially happy in my life. I, I was working in the television industry, and I wasn't enjoying it. And I missed family funerals and friends' weddings. And I, I needed to change myself. And um, when a job came up in Australia, I went to take it. And I spent a year 
in Australia living with some family out there and when I came back I didn't want to work in television anymore and uh, I, I, I found myself writing um, a travel blog as I'd been, been going and then I started working for a couple of magazines and, and working in a very formal house style I found myself just wanting more and so that's mm -hmm. when I began writing these experimental pieces that were the antithesis of what I was doing for the magazines. Um, and I, I wrote these, these experimental pieces for three or four years and I, I started to be published by magazines like uh, Gutter, the wonderful Gutter magazine uh, and others. And then I found myself at this crossroads I described where I, I, experimentation wasn't enough anymore. I, I, I wanted to do something with it. And it's been stories for me ever since. Chikorsio, how did you start? Because you had a, you went to Cyprus at some point to write, to study, to yeah. be a writer. Faster. You always wanted to be a writer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the trajectory is interesting. I so I fell in love with storytelling as a child, and I always envied the folks who were who were the creators of the books that I I read so and then but uh, it began actually with with hearing stories and and so uh, my dad would tell me stories and there was a day when uh, I first discovered reading that uh, most of the stories he was telling were gotten from books and so when I I, I began reading as I said, I, I started to envy those who had written these books and had this yearning, burning one, desire to create something. So I, I started writing uh, from, from like when I learned to read, maybe nine or so. But, but I, I, I know that by the time I was 11, I had the full novel, uh, you know, which of course, uh, if you read it, you wouldn't have come here. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So yes, it's it, it was uh, very early on, really. It's uh, it's just what I've always wanted to do. It's it's been the center of my life. Uh, yeah, I love it. Now we have. A, can we have a um, a mic here in the front row, please? Hi. Just following on from that. Can you tell us who you are? Um, my name is Felicity Harwood. Hi, Felicity. Nice to meet you. Um, what were the stories that your father told you that inspired you? Oh, very interesting. You, you know, I, I was a sickly child at, at, as, as a little boy. And uh, it, it's something, I, I just returned from Nigeria, and I asked him, why was it that I was always in the hospital? And he said it, it was a blood type. So we we have some kind of uh, malaria typhoid and, and some small, small illnesses that we haven't wiped out yet, do, you know. So I, if you have the, that blood type, you, you were vulnerable to those until you developed a very strong immune system and mm. from, from your teenage years. <laughs> so uh, my dad was always by my side in the hospitals. And so the, the one thing I always wanted him to do was, for whatever reason, was tell me stories. So he was always, and he would just produce them effortlessly. So I saw him at the time as this great man who could produce uh, these things. So then, uh, there were, so he told me, but then I discovered that he was getting them from books. He would read and pretend as if he was, in fact, the one who <laughs> created the stories. So, but I, I, I remember uh, that he told me stories from uh, a Mostutuola's book. That one I found, the palm wine drinker, very mm -hmm. fascinating. And the day I learned, I discovered reading was when I asked him to tell me a story, actually. And, and he was like, you know, you're of age now, you should read them yourself. And then he, he gave me a book, which I read and discovered that one, that story about a skull, a uh, very mythic story, uh, about a skull that wants to go to the earth where human beings lived and had to borrow body parts. So he goes to neighbor A, I want your head. 
like, you know your legs and until it makes up itself you know so i i that story stayed with me so much that even now just a few years ago i wrote a an ma dissertation on it you know so uh that one and and you know things fall apart and but so mainly stories from our village the the ancient uh meets stuff and even shakespeare i i remember that he told me uh a story that about the fall of rome which uh is the the brutus story you know caesar and, and all of that stuff yeah so that guy was was the person who uh, fed me this thing <laughs> simon one of the things that um really struck me about reading the visitors which maybe you can explain, because I haven't been able to kind of clear it in my own mind, is this kind of frenetic sense of my reading of it, particularly racing towards the end. You want to know what's going to happen. But it was different from... At first, I thought it was just the, the plot that actually just wanted to know what was going to happen. When you read thrillers, one of the reasons why um, they don't work if you read them again is that, in fact, all you want to know is what's going to happen and once you know it they're finished um, but that wasn't the experience of this because this is a book that I've reread and it was very very powerful but does it have something to do perhaps with the way you write I know that you you teach as well so perhaps your writing time is very limited yeah um, ab absolutely um, I, I, I teach uh, video production three days a week um, so that's my Monday Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday, Friday are my kind of sacrosanct writing days um, when, when my wife is uh, good enough to make sure that Dora's taken care of and I've, I've got the space to sit down and work. But, but with two days a week to, to write, I have to get everything in there. And I, I do tend to write in very explosive bursts. Uh, it's, it's a bad day for me if it's less than 2,000 words, say. And um, on, I've, I wrote my last... I've just finished the manuscript of my second novel which was averaging about 4,000 words a day, which um, feel, feels like a lunacy when I say it out loud. The last day of The Visitors, I wrote 11,000 words in a day, in about 14 hours. And when I finished it, I, I couldn't close my fist. I, I had a kind of RSI in my hand um, that meant I couldn't close my hand for a, properly for a day or two. And, and I suppose that... Do you write by hand? No, 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 no. I, I, I have a friend who. Yeah. I have a friend who just who's just written a hundred and thirty thousand word manuscript longhand, in green ink as well. Uh, and he, he told me that it it gets carried around in fifteen shopping bags, and if they get out of order, then he's in deep trouble. So, no, no computers for me. I I, I use a notebook and a pen, and I use computers. Um, but I, I guess it does mean that I, I need to be immersed. I, I, I try and drown myself in, in the, the world, in the location, and, and to believe it, I suppose. And um, the more I know that the book is working when I can sit back down on that Thursday morning and start, oops, sorry, and start work as though I'd, I'd never been away. And, and that's, that's what I'm looking for. That, that's, that's where I'm trying to be as a, as a writer is, utterly convinced by what I'm doing and, and then I just have to hope at the at the end of some fairly brutal redrafting that, that other people will be convinced as well so <laughs> I, I found that I mean I get into very bad habits like um, when I'm writing verbs I always get the n and the g the wrong way around um, so if I yeah the word singing would always end up being s-i-n-g-i-g-n and it means that I've got loads and loads of redrafting to do and the two first two capital letters are always capitalized I, I don't know how, how do you write Chigozi? Well, I, I was going to ask you a question, but <laughs> uh, I, I think I, you know, my, I don't plan. I'm, I'm unable to, because, uh, so I, I wait for the. I heard you was he at the at the writers' gathering. You, you told me that. Uh, you, you said. Uh, the stories come fully formed. Did you say the the visitors? The visitors dropped into my head as as an idea as from whole. start to finish, and I knew what it was. It it evolved completely as I as I went. Okay, good. So I I, th I think uh, we we have a kind of similar system. But what I do is that I 
try not to put anything down until I am sure that everything is fully formed. So I, I would say that there is this gestation period that happens. Sometimes it can take a very long time. As as the second novel is happening now, I I started before, but then I I discovered that it wasn't fully formed. So I stopped and and the whole idea has been building itself in my mind. So it can take a year, it can take two months, it can take two days, and then when I assume when when I'm convinced enough that this is a story I want to tell, then I write very quickly. Like you, I I, I wrote the Fisherman, the first draft in 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 a sprawl, maybe six or seven hours. I had the first draft. Wow! Wow! <laughs> you did the level, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's amazing, though. That's amazing. It, it, the, the the fisherman feels it's got this kind of titanic scope. It's got this yeah. this massive sense of presence and gravity to it that that that, that I, I I would have if I'd been asked to guess, I would have expected that that actually it was planned and written in a much more controlled manner than okay. that. So, but, but, but because it has this, this real gravity to it, mm. that, that, that it's just, it's overwhelming, it's wonderful, it's amazing. Well, I, I, I think it's that time, I, 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 can't, I can't be very impatient with things, but when it comes to writing, I can be very patient. So maybe that, that whole planning happened uh, while it was gestating. And, but, but you, man, I, I, I told you uh, a while ago that the, the landscape of the imagination here in, 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 the, in the novel, you, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, and I've, I've just been to Edinburgh for the first time. Uh, but I, I know that the landscape of, of most of these areas is, is very green, you know. But then the, the way you describe the island, uh, just you pay so much attention to landscape uh, in, in a very vivid and almost visceral way. It's so concentrated and it comes alive. So what do you do? Do you sit by the sea or something and just oh. take notes? <laughs> I, 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 I think you need to be there. I think you need to be in, in a landscape to, mm. to believe in it. And I, in a sense, actually, I found that my filmmaking work has been of, of huge benefit to me because if I'm making some wee promotional film for the local museum. They, they had a, a man dressed up as a Roman centurion and they wanted me to do some green screen work with him to say, oh yeah, and we'll shoot this against the backdrop of Morecambe Bay and it'll look amazing. I said, well, that's great, but, but instead of a green screen, why don't we just go to Morecambe Bay and, and film him? And, you know, I, I, so I go to Morecambe Bay and, and we're setting it up with microphones and things and I, you find yourself thinking about the lapping of the sea on the shore uh, and the sound of the seagulls and of dog walkers calling for their dogs and you find yourself wishing that you had shot it in front of a green screen. <laughs> and, but but, but it's, it's, it's being there, it's the smell of, mm. of the shore. There, there's nothing quite like that. Uh, right. it, and I, I, my, the manuscript I've just finished is set in a, a swampland. And again, I couldn't find a swampland that did quite what I wanted to. Right. I, I needed bits of tidal estuary and bits of peat bog and all, all kinds of things. And again, I've built a, an amalgamation of, of places. But I, I, I do feel the need to go there. Oh, and I do man. feel feel the need to kind of have ground squelching underfoot and oh, to hear to hear right. the birds singing and that's important to me. I, I, I see a landscape, a location as as integral to, to the story in a way that, that those experimental pieces that I've mentioned were, were not they were usually simply in somebody's head. They they were they were very immersive and very uh, reflective and very introspective. And, and now I, I see location as, as being crucial. It's, 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 it's the background against which the characters move like drops of water mm. to, to, to reach the bottom where you have your conclusion. And, but then again, that's what I get from The Fisherman as well, is, is this very, very wonderfully realized landscape. And when you're talking about the, the juxtaposition of two Nigerias, it, it's amazing for me that I didn't consider this until I was sitting here and, and you said so, but Ben, leaves the story, I suppose, in 1993. And when he comes back, all those scars of war uh, are gone. The streets are cleaned. 
it's not gentrified, but, but there's new building, uh, uh, old incomplete buildings have been completed, there are new shops, the roads are better, it's cleaner, and, and he's missed that. Yeah. He's, he's, he's almost woken up into a new world, and I suppose that's, that was part of his, his punishment. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of homecoming, you, you would say. Uh, I, 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 I think that it's, it's so fascinating what you just described, having to be there mm. and looking at those things. It, it shows when I, there, there are so many passages that I, I marked out, especially the sea, how you describe. We, we both have water bodies, mm. but I assume that the, the sea is very different from a river. I can't hear this thing, I think. I hope it's working. Anyway, so, uh, but me, my, my, my own reading or my, the, the, my own process is a little bit different from yours. So I felt like living in Cyprus helped me get a clearer picture of Nigeria. Ah, okay. In, yeah. in, in uh, you know, because I, I, I do believe that to be able to, to, to describe what I wanted. I wanted to trust hindsight. Mm. So I, I, I've been saying that if I lived in Nigeria, I probably wouldn't have been able to write The Fisherman as I finally wrote it. So it's, it's fascinating. I wanted to ask you that question because I, I could see that there, there was this extremely vivid, uh, this thing you know, that you had there, and, and I wanted to know your process. Gentlemen. We must stop, I'm afraid. There are lots and lots of questions still to be asked and many things to be said. We are going to move now to the Signing Tent Bookshop, which is just across the way there. The best, kindest, nicest thing you can do for a writer is to buy their book. The second nicest thing you can do for these two writers is to vote in the first book award. You're going to get a flyer as you leave the door. And actually, you're allowed to, to vote for both books. So thank you. Thank you, Chigozia. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for your method. Thank you, thank you so much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.